celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from coast to coast, worldwide, through the World Wide Web, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, This is yours truly, Brian Chilton, uh, joined alongside the cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo, and we're so uh, thankful that uh, you're with us tonight. Do have a few things to mention to you before we get started. I am uh, blessed and honored to to announce to you that the book, uh, Conversations About Heaven, has now been submitted to the publishers. So hopefully we should know here within a month or so, uh, really a few weeks, about when the publication date will be. I mean, there's still an editorial process uh, that that has to go underway uh, to get the the book ready to to sell. And so uh, it's going through resource publishers. Uh, it's an imprint of Whiff and Stock, and so it's the same publishers that published, uh, that produced uh, the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics a few years ago. So excited about that. That'll be my second book. We're going to have a third one coming up in 24, and this is going to involve the entire team of Bellator Christie. And we've got a book coming up called uh, Why Creationism Still Makes Sense. And so we're looking forward to that. And uh, And so you'll hear more about that one coming up in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, so we got that as well. We're also pleased to announce that we have uh, brought on Bellator Christie Ministries two as uh, two more associate VPs, vice presidents. Uh, we've got an associate VP of Publication and Communications, and that's our own T- Dr. T.J. Gentry. Uh, there's a lot going into that because he's going to help us with the publication wing of uh, Bellator Christie and. I'm excited about this. I believe we we have the potential of producing numerous books uh, coming up with a partnership with uh, TJ uh, and uh, and and his public publishing company. So we're excited about that. Uh, also, Deanna Huff, she's uh, one of our publishers now. We brought her on just as of today uh, as a, uh, an associate vice president of uh, of spiritual out uh, of of spiritual. Uh, what is it? How is it we worded that spiritual? Um, well, give me just a second. It's outreach and spiritual ministry, I think, is the way we worded that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she's going to come on. And she's going to help us. We're, we're going to work with her to uh, possibly look at other ways that we can minister to you, our Bellator Christi uh, readers and listeners. So she's spiritual care. Why would that word not come to me? Spiritual care of all the words that would not come to me. But anyhow, spiritual care and outreach. She's going to help us to find uh, ways we can better reach out with the ministry. And so we've got a great team. I mean, Curtis, he's our associate VP of podcasting. Uh, he's a he's a co-host here, producer. Uh, we, we've got a wide ranging team. Michelle Johnson, our executive VP, uh, she's helping us as a, as a managing editor as well. We just got an excellent team, and we just keep coming together in a powerful fashion. We've got some wonderful contributors, and so 
I tell you what, the sky is the limit as to what God can do and will do through this ministry. And so we're just trusting him uh, with the increase, and we know that he will provide. And so we're just excited about what God is doing. So books coming out again, conversations about heaven that should be ready to go uh, sometime this spring. So so stay tuned to Bellator Christie podcast uh, and, and the ministries, uh, as well. Uh, just as a reminder, also coming up this summer, we're going to have a few special, just a handful of very small podcasts, uh, to discuss various topics that we just didn't have time to discuss on a regular season. We're calling this the Bellator Christie Overtime. And so that'll be coming up this summer, but you can only catch that on the audio version of the podcast. So if you're subscribed uh, to the podcast on iTunes, tune in Google podcasts, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and so on and so forth, Stitcher, so on and so forth. Um, what is that one you use, Curtis? Is it over? Overcast. Yep. It, it's Overcast. part of it. Yep. And it works really well. It's a super fast one. So, so yeah, we're we're on there as well. So anywhere podcasts are found, you'll be able to find this summer edition. So just a handful of podcasts coming up there, and it'll be very brief, very brief podcasts as well. I think that's everything I had to cover. I had a lot to discuss in a Whew. short amount of time. So still <laughs> <laughs> like that guy back in the eighties who was uh, the guy who read the announcements and read them real fast, oh and you could barely understand what he said. He was good. <laughs> He was very good. He was good. Yeah. But today we're talking. I would talk to you really slow. Oh, same here. Same here. (laughs) But but today we're talking about the grace of God, irresistible or resistible. Oh, yeah. I had one more thing I need to discuss. Unfortunately, uh, due to scheduling conflicts, we had initially planned to have Dr. Chad Thornhill on with us next week discussing Romans chapter 9. Unfortunately, his schedule is not going to allow him to be on with us that Thursday evening. And the times that he was available, we weren't going to be able to to be there to to meet with him. So we're going to have to postpone uh, our conversation with him. But we're still going to look at Romans chapter 9 next week. We're going to take a look at it from a hermeneutical standpoint, exegetical standpoint, and, and show why, why this doesn't necessarily teach uh, the, the Calvinist doctrine. So we're, we're going to come at it from that approach, hopefully graciously and winsomely, but uh, that's the goal anyhow. But we'll, we'll do that coming up uh, next week. Dr. T.J. Gentry is scheduled to be on with us here in a couple of weeks to discuss his new book. He has one coming out uh, sometime this year, and he'll talk more about that with mm-hmm. us. And believe it or not, that will conclude our series on soteriology. And then we have uh, we have uh, a few podcasts. Well, my goodness, we only have a couple of months left, quite honestly, March, April, um, two months and a half, really, uh, of podcasts left. So we've got just a handful of podcasts we'll do on the knowledge of God, uh, as we're going to talk about how we know God exists, and that's part of a theology proper series. I think you're going to really enjoy it because we're going to get into mm-hmm. some apologetics as we uh, discuss some of those issues. And so uh, it's hard to believe. Season yeah. six is almost coming to a close. Yeah, it's flying by. It is. It's flying by. So let's jump right in, Brian. Let's go ahead and get after this Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Um, we appear in this frozen 
frozen uh, Montana snow drifted and below zero wind is I'm ready oh to just goodness. get in. Heat it up. Let's heat it up with some some irresistible grace or resistance. Man, that is that is insane because it was almost eighty degrees down here and we had to actually ah, turn on the air conditioning. I know. I know. I saw that. I'm like, oh, you dirty buggers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't turn the heaters, uh, the furnaces on as, for backup um, when this cold kind of hit because I was like, ah, we'll just keep keep burning the wood stove. Just keep it going because we got a really nice wood stove here and uh, it heats it up pretty good. Well, last night I choked it down um, before we went to bed. I choked it down pretty good. Apparently choked it down almost a little too far because woke up and it was 51 degrees in the house. And so, oh, man, everybody was sleeping good. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, it was cold. So. So anyway, let's jump right in. So. What do we mean by irresistibly or resist irresistibility or resistibility of God's grace? So when we we speak of these issues, we're talking our irresistibility, resistibility. We're talking about whether or not it's possible for a person to resist the grace of God when He freely offers it. So, in other words, the the question on 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 tap tonight is. When God moves in our lives, when God offers us salvation, do we have a choice to receive? Now, if you follow the tulip of Calvinism, this would be the I, irresistible grace. So is it irresistible, meaning that a person can't respond to the grace of God, or is it resistible, meaning that a person can resist the grace of God? Gotcha. So then what are the two two theories regarding the irresistible or and the resistible faith um and what does what does each theory teach us about uh the operation of god's grace and human will and and where do we sit with that absolutely so it it should be no surprise by this time (laughs) that there are two major camps uh, the Calvinist camp and the non-Calvinist camp. And, and I say non-Calvinist because I think there are a wide range of beliefs. I mean, typically Arminianism is the one that's, that's mentioned, but, but there mm-hmm. are other variants like uh, right. Thomism, Molinism. Molinism has a lot in common with Arminianism, uh, but it all offers that one little tweak. We've, we've mentioned that in, in several podcasts talking about middle knowledge. Um, Wesleyanism, um, and and though I'm not a fan of it, there's even the open theistic theistic uh, interpretation. But but especially looking now, there are many people who are who are going to say that Thomas Aquinas is in the Reform camp. I, I'm not one of those. I don't agree. So anyhow, let's get into into it. Calvinists hold that no one has a choice but to respond to God's grace, uh, no matter what they decide. Uh, so, in other words, the human will is either non-existent or severely incapacitated by sin. And non-Calvinists argue that people can respond or reject God's grace. Non-Calvinists hold that God is still the first mover, meaning that he still offers salvation, 
but that God provides individuals the opportunity to willfully uh, w- within them respond to his grace or reject that, that uh, his grace. 16th century reformer John Calvin argued that people do not have the ability to do this. Rather, their wills must be shaped by God to accept or reject God's free offer. So I'm going to read something from John Calvin. Calvin writes, I say then that grace is not offered to us in such a way that afterwards we have the option either to submit or to resist. I say that it is not given merely to aid our weakness uh, by its support as though anything depended on us apart from it. But I demonstrate that it is entirely the work of grace and a benefit conferred by it that our heart is changed from a stony one to one of flesh and that our will is made new and that we created a new and heart and mind at length will what we ought to will. So in other words, in the Institutes of Religion, Calvin is teaching that even before we could freely respond to God's grace, that God would have to mold our will so that we would be able to uh, to respond. But it gets worse for John Calvin. Since humans can do nothing outside of God's direction, in his opinion, then even God predetermines and directs evil events. John Calvin yeah. writes this, The Jews intended to destroy Christ. Pilate and his soldiers compl- uh, complied with their mad desire. Yet in solemn prayer, the disciples confessed that, all of the impious ones had had done nothing except what the hand and plan of God had decreed. So Peter had already preached that by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Christ had been given over to be killed. It is as if we were to say that God, that God to whom from the beginning nothing was hidden, wittingly and willingly determined that the Jews what the Jews carried out. Now, I think he grossly exaggerates Acts 4.28 in this passage. And I'm just Mm. going to say that this is nothing short of disturbing because Calvin forgets that the term foreknowledge, and he mentions foreknowledge, but as he's applying this in his theological system, he forgets that the term foreknowledge is added to the text, meaning God's foreknowing what would happen. And so additionally, he doesn't take into effect the effect uh, the, uh, the free will responses of each individual. So it's almost as if Calvin is saying that every evil act is directed by God. Now, is it, there's a difference between God knowing and, and wills this to come, not, well, not wills, uh, permits this to come about. It's a difference between God knowing and, and permitting it to come about, but it's a, it's a difference between that happening and God uh, forcing this and decreeing this and and making this happen by forcing the hands of individuals to do this or that. In other words, what Calvin seems to be saying is that God is the author of evil in this case, and that God can do evil actions. Now, that's very disturbing. Now, Acts 4.28 says, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place, predetermined. But that predetermination has to be understood by Acts 2.23, saying, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross to kill him. Notice, even though God knew it and permitted it, 
it was still the free will actions of the individuals that brought it together. So it's not as if God didn't know what they would freely do, understand. So that parameter is very big and very important to uh, understand. So thus God could may have permitted such deeds to occur, but he did not direct them. He did not force them to come about. So the Calvinist approach, in my opinion, my estimation, contends that God can do evil, but this disregards texts such as 1 John. Uh, let me see if I can find this text uh, where John says that uh, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Let's see. God is light. What's where this is? Uh, 1 John. But, Brian, let me while you're looking for that, let me ask you this. Does it really follow that that in on Acts four twenty eight, does it really follow that that then applies to all the believers to follow? All, all the believers to follow that time period, or was it specifically just what he was saying was in in Christ, in Christ's duties, the things that he was doing that was foreordained? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And and, and well, let's come back to that. I, I want to share this. Okay. I'm going to share my screen here real quickly. Um, and then we'll we'll come back to that because I think that's a very important topic. Maybe we just need to look at the uh that passage in its uh, in its totality. Let me let me see if I can okay. bring this up right quick. I, I want to share this one first though. Uh, this is one from first John, and this is just as much scripture as the other scripture we read. Um, okay, I'll see. Let me pull this over. Okay, so John says, "This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you: God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Hmm. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sins." If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So here, when he's talking about darkness in this passage of Scripture, he's talking about unrighteousness. He's talking about mm -hmm. sin. Uh, darkness is generally a metaphor for sin and righteousness and death. Light is a symbol of of love, of righteousness, and uh, of of life. So, following this, if God is light, then He means that He's absolutely pure, and in Him there is no evil whatsoever. And I believe it's in James, if I'm not mistaken, that James even says that when we are tempted, let us not say we're being tempted of God, because God cannot tempt us. Because essentially, He's saying God is pure, God is holy, God is just. And there is no evil in him whatsoever. Now, what was that passage of scripture, Curtis? Acts four, four twenty-eight, four twenty-eight. Mm -hmm. So let's go back and look. Um, so we, we're talking here. This is about Peter and John. They had been they had been imprisoned, and we see in verse twenty-three they'd been released. And they went to their own people, reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them, uh, and and they raised up their voices together 
uh, to God and said, Master, you are one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And he quotes, uh, this is Psalm 2, 1 through 2. Uh, why do Gentiles rage? The kings of the earth take their stand. Uh, that's willful behaviors there, by the way. Mm. For in fact, in uh, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together. Now they chose to willingly assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Now, that word predestined, we, we talked about this. Non-Calvinists even believe in predestination, but it's, it's shrouded within the pre-knowledge, the foreknowledge of God, uh, the prognosco, the foreknowledge of God, knowing what free creatures will do. There's not a conflict between the, the free will of humanity and the sovereign plan of God. They're going to both go together like a hand in glove. So I think Calvin oversteps himself. He 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 caught he he exaggerates this passage of scripture just as I think he also does in Romans chapter nine, as we'll take a look at that next week. But is there anything else you want to talk about here? Uh, you want to talk about in this passage of scripture? Well, I was just I was just pointing out so does it really follow to take that scripture acts you know 428 and then apply it to every every person that then turns to god and 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 make that scripture fit over the top of them as predestined to take place or predestined to do or could that be applied to the specific duty and charge and and mission that Christ had that was already predestined. I think it just depends on on where you come where you come to with your your theological system. Uh, the I guess the question would essentially be: Does does God have that foreknowledge for all events? Now, mm-hmm. now, Arminians and Molinists and Thomists would say yes. Um, open theists would say maybe in some circumstances, um, but maybe not. Um, so, it, so, so to your point, does this passage of scripture have enough to argue the point that this is the, true in all cases? No, it doesn't. Uh, I, th- I think this is talking specifically about the case of Jesus. But then you ask the question, does that also apply to other events? Well, it may or may not, but I think I think you're right. I think uh, Calvin oversteps his bounds, even with the application. He, he's uh, There's a uh, logical fallacy. Uh, I was trying to think what it's called. It won't come to me, but where you where you see something of a of, of a micro uh, something microscopically and then you apply it to every instance and I think he made that logical fallacy in this case. Gotcha. gotcha. Interesting. So does Scripture provide evidence that a person willfully responds or rejects God's grace? I tell you what, before before I go there, um, I actually have another little section here I would like to cover before we get into that, because I I think as we're talking about Calvin and how he views this, I think there's a better way, and it actually comes 
from a guy who's often called by some non-Calvinist as a determinist, which he absolutely most assuredly is not, and that is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas strongly accepts the freedom of the human will, and he writes, man has free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In other words, he's saying that if we didn't have free will, then the law makes no sense. The law Mm. of God makes no sense. And then he goes on to say, in order to make this evident, we must observe that some things act without judgment as a stone moves downward, and like manner all things which lack knowledge. In other words, inanimate objects go as they're directed. And that's what Calvin seems to suggest, even of people. And some act from judgment, but not a free judgment as brute animals. So they're they're following after their own um, passions or 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 uh, instincts. That's the word I'm looking for. They're following their instincts. For the sheep, seeing the wolf, judges it a thing to be shunned from a natural, not a free judgment. Uh, and the same thing is said of any judgment of brute animals. But man acts from judgment, he says, because by his apprehensive power, he judges that something should be avoided or sought. But then he goes on down to say, but do people move themselves to salvation? Uh, absolutely not, because Aquinas goes on to say, God moves man to act not only by proposing the appetitable to the senses or or by affecting a change in his body, but also by moving the will itself, because every movement either of the will or of nature proceeds from God as the first mover, as just it is not the incompatible with nature that is the natural movement be from God as the first mover. So let me go on down here. So essentially, um, he says both natural and voluntary movements have this in common, that it is essential that they should proceed from a principle within the agent. Okay, so here's the point. Some people may read that and say, well, he seems to be saying the same thing that John Calvin is, but he's not. If you understand Thomas Aquinas' theology and his philosophy, he is saying that God is the first mover. God moves upon an individual, and then that secondary agent has the ability ability to respond or react to that mm-hmm. initial grace brought upon it. So in other words, uh, this is the same thing, really, that Armenians have been saying, same thing that, that others have been saying, that God is the first mover. He extends mm-hmm. to us his grace. And when he does, that individual has the opportunity to respond or reject. Now, God already knows how people are going to respond, and that's how God can move in and through a person's free will decisions. So even going back to Acts chapter 4, we we can see that God knew the events that were going to take place. He knew the free will will uh, reactions that they would have, and the same thing happened with Pharaoh and Moses. God knew Mm -hmm. that Pharaoh would harden his heart. What was it that caused his heart to harden it was the grace of God being applied, the loving grace of God being applied over to Pharaoh. So that's not to say that God's grace isn't moving upon an individual. God, and we're certainly not saying that a person can save oneself. But what we're saying is God moves upon that person. He is the first mover. He's the prime mover. And that person reacts uh, uh, either positively or negatively uh, to the grace of God first given. So I did. I wanted to add that because I think many people have inaccurately 
given Aquinas a bad standing when I'm not sure that he's as deterministic as a lot of people seem to present him as. Hmm. So then... So then back to the question, then, does Scripture provide evidence that a person willfully responds or rejects God's grace? I, I wanted so. to take a look at a handful of passages of, of Scripture, sure. uh, and, and I want to start off here with, uh, if I can find my Bible, here it is, uh, Romans 10.9, and, th- mm-hmm. and this is a very important passage of Scripture, Romans 10.9. Different passages, different translations read this differently. But I'm going to ask, if you will, Curtis, to read uh, verses 9 through, let's go on down to verse 13. Sure. So on the screen um, is Romans 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Once believe, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <laughs> I don't know how much simpler we can get because that's that's shrouded in a conditional statement. Uh, here yeah. you have the antecedent, what comes first. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Correct. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, what's the consequence? The consequence. You won't be saved if you, if, yeah. If you don't, so so it, let let's do this in reverse. That's the beautiful thing about uh, uh, conditional statements. You can do the reverse. So if you don't confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if yep. you don't believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. Then then what happens? You will not be saved. Absolutely. Yep. So it's presenting the case of salvation to individuals. Correct. Very, in a very simple package. By the way, this is likely an early confessional statement, at least verse 9 is, an early confessional statement that dates back to the earliest church, um, along with the Philippians hymn, uh, the Colossians creed, and, and many others, even First uh, Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. Uh, this would be in the same boat. This is an early confessional statement of the church. And then he even quotes... Uh, let's see here. He quotes Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, and he quotes um, G- uh, Joel two uh, thirty two there as well. So that's pretty well open and shut there. But there are others. Let's take a look at Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. And I'll ask if you'll read. Go ahead and read. Uh, go ahead and read that whole thing. So thirty-seven through thirty-nine. Okay, so thirty-seven. It says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, <laughs> who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you." You will not see me again until you say, 
Baruch Kabab B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. <laughs> How about our Hebrew scholar here? <laughs> Psalm 118.26. Um, so here again. Jesus, God was calling out to Jerusalem. He wanted to gather to the, the children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the wings. But look what he says here. They were not willing. Right. So can a person resist God's grace? Apparently. <laughs> it seems fairly evident in that passage of scripture. And those it are the words like of Jesus. <laughs> Quacks like a duck. <laughs> Likely it's a duck. Isaiah 55, 56, and 57. We'll bring this back up. Uh, we read this earlier, uh, I think actually a couple podcasts ago. Uh, 56, 56, and uh, hold on a second. Let me bring this back up here. 55, 56. Um, no, that's supposed to be 55, 6 through 7, I believe is what. Yeah, there it is. Um so go, how about reading those for us there, Curtis, six and seven? Okay, so six says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. I, I just... I, let me let me ask that question for he will freely forgive. What does that mean? Willfully you and know. freely forgive? Yeah. Hmm. And that's linked in with a bunch of other passages of scripture there as well. Isaiah you know. 118, yeah, 43, wow. 25, 44, 22. There's quite there a bit well. there with that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's this up here is linked with uh, Psalm 33, Isaiah 32, 7, yeah. chapter 9, 7, 65, 2. Um, and let's take a look at 6 up here. This is linked with Amos 5, 4 and Psalm 32, 6. So we could even do a cross-reference there if if time oh. permitted. Yeah, um, Amos, Amos, that's your that's your boy, isn't it? That anyone who is brave enough to call a group of women cows in Bashan <laughs> – has got to be one either dumb or brave one. <laughs> and we're talking about wealthy, powerful women, and he calls them cows. I'm like, what in the world, Amos? Where <laughs> <laughs> we go wrong? <laughs> I had to open that door, didn't I? <laughs> Oh, I took a class on Amos years ago, and and I never will forget because I wasn't as familiar with that prophet then as I as I am now. And and I read that, and I thought, my goodness, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness. Let's t- so so let's take a look at Isaiah thirty one six, uh, Isaiah thirty one six. Um, So he says here, return one of the Israelites 
have greatly rebelled against. And he's appealing to the people to return to the Lord. For on that day, everyone will reject the worthless idols of silver and gold mm. that your hands have yep. sinfully made. So, so yep. here again, there's that, that appeal for individuals to respond to the grace of God. And it makes no sense to have an appeal like that if someone didn't have the ability to do so. I mean, so that's like telling someone to go play ping pong if they have no hands uh, <laughs> or, or some, you know, something of the sort. It, it makes no sense if they have no ability to play um, ping pong. You know, it's just a cruel joke, you know, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyhow, let's take a look at a couple other passages of Scripture. Uh, let's look at... Uh, I think we've already read Zechariah 1, 2 through 4. I think we read that a few weeks ago. So I won't go to that just to save on time. Let's look at Acts 15, 3. Acts 15, 3. Uh, we'll read that one. And how about reading that for us, Curtis? Sure. So 3 says, When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the con- the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Mm-hmm. It says in five, so, it, it says, it says in five, it says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep in the law of Moses. So what we really see in that passage of Scripture is is that people heard the gospel and they responded to the gospel. Uh, And what, what is it, Romans 10, where it talks about uh, the necessity of sending a preacher. How will they hear without the preacher? And and it's it's through the hearing of the word and responding to the word that a person is saved. Um, now, did, could God do that without us? Absolutely, God could if He wanted to, if He chose to. But He chooses to use us to 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 glorify His name and to present His gospel to a lost and dying world. So, so we're honored to be to be part of that mission. Now, let's take mm-hmm. a look at one last passage of Scripture: Luke twenty through four. Excuse me, Luke twenty four forty three through forty seven twenty four. Uh, 43 through 47. And the reason I read down past four and into five was to, was I kind of, I felt like, okay, let's not only show that there were people that freely chose to follow, but there were also those that were wanting Mm -hmm. to put burdens, freely put burdens on the people that, that turned to Christ. Absolutely. Very much so. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. This is the story of Jesus meeting two individuals going down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. They were saying this. Uh, let's see. It says here somewhere who these two individuals are. Um, up, up higher. Yep. Cleopas. Cleopas was one. It doesn't mention the second disciple, but many people believe that since they were going to the same house, 
that the other disciple may have been Cleopas's wife. Mm-hmm. So it may have been a husband and wife that were going home uh, after hearing of all these different things. And so um, let's go down to, oops, went too far. Let's t- take a look at, um, well, okay, so he eats a piece of broiled fish, took it and ate it in the presence. Let's read verses 44 through 49. Okay. This is the focus. Okay. So this is Jesus telling him, says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds they, to, to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what I what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance for forgiveness for sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witness of all these of these things. And look, I I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So, look, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness and sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Why? So that people would repent and respond to the message of salvation, respond to the grace of God. And notice he also says down in verse 49, waiting, stay in the city to you you are empowered. Empowered by whom? Powered by the Holy Spirit of God. So that Holy Spirit was going with them to convict individuals of this message that they would hear, and that person would have the opportunity to freely respond to the grace of God imparted in their life. Again, one of the biggest problems I think we see uh, with with Calvinism is that that they, they take even the whole aspect of sin too far to the point that they feel that it incapacitates us to do anything spiritual whatsoever. But, but I don't think, I, I do think sin has had a major impact on our lives. Sin has is grossly incapacitated us from being able to save ourselves, but it hasn't, uh, it hasn't discarded the image of God in our lives and where God's spirit speaks to our spirit. He makes that connection with us. We can spiritually, uh, make a response freely to the grace of God. That doesn't mean salvation is of us. It doesn't mean that it's work-based. It simply means that we, being spiritual people, have the ability to spiritually react to the Spirit of God that is applied to our lives. And I think that's that's all it is. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Uh, it's, it's really simple. And I think we have seen numerous and in fact, there are, I would dare say there are dozens and dozens more scriptures we could, we could list if right. time permitted uh, of yeah. other cases just as this. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of walking through this, this part of the scriptures where, or this idea of the scriptures as we're, as we're going through it, you're, you're, you're hearing this mantra, this word, choose, choose. Mm-hmm choose make the choice you do it you turn that doesn't mean that that's a work 
Mm-hmm. That just means that, you know, you're turning, you're choosing. So, And there's passages of Scripture in Isaiah. In fact, I think I, I, when I flipped to the one a while ago, I, I, I went to one of the other ones that mentioned that uh, – that where, where Isaiah is told to preach to a people that the, so that their eyes would be blinded so they would not hear. And some people will say, well, what do you do about that? Well, I think it's the same thing you see whenever a person rejects the Spirit of God. It's the same thing that happened with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, the grace of God is the, that first moment that comes upon an individual, and they have that opportunity to reject God's grace. But if you reject God's grace, you're blinding yourself to the truth. You're blinding yourself. Uh, you're deafening your ears so that you can't hear spiritual things. And, you know, the, the more you go in that regard, the, the more spiritually deadened you'll, you'll become. Now, can God still overcome that and, and still right. reach down to a person's heart to, to, um, provide them a chance to respond to his grace? Absolutely. But even still, um, I think that's what the past year scripture has in mind and not that God is going to force someone to go to hell. That That's just so completely right. against the character of God. And Ezekiel 18, we didn't even pull this passage of scripture up, but the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 talks about human responsibility. And at the end of the chapter, God even says that he doesn't want to send anyone into judgment. He would rather a person repent and turn from their sins. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, so, um, well, then what is necessary for someone to have a salvific faith? Very simple. It's this one. That's one of the things that I loved about Billy Graham. Hmm. The man was super smart. But when he preached the message of salvation, it was so simple. And really, we we just read a passage of scripture a while ago that simply lays out the plan of salvation. Romans 10, right. 9, that if right. you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. Right. And that right. that involves an intellectual assent to the essentials of Christ's right. life. And also involves a spiritual confession and commitment of Christ's lordship over your life. It's as simple as that. There's no um, pomp and circumstance. There's nothing else. You don't have to buy um, a bunch of different things or give to a bunch of different churches. You don't have to to do all of these different things. You're not held to a to to walk a tight rope, and if you you fall off the tight rope, you've lo- you know you've uh, no longer saved. It's not about that. It's about committing your life to Christ and following him after uh, following him and having placing your faith and trust in him. And that's what it's about. Mm. Yeah. So then, um, when a person comes to Christ. What aspects of a person's uh, volition? Are involved. Well, here I'm going. To, I, I like the works of Thomas Oden, and I, and I want to tell you he's he's gone to be with the Lord many years ago. And I just saw where uh, Philip Atkins said hello. We want to say hello to Philip Atkins. Hope he's doing well tonight. But it's it's a, it's a very good book. If you can find this, it's called Classic Christianity. I highly recommend this book. Uh, Thomas Oden. Uh, years ago, he was actually he actually started off as a very liberal 
uh, theologian, but he uh, became convicted of uh, the historicity of Christianity and became a, a very conservative theologian. Now, I don't know politically what, you know, if that has anything to do with politics right. something like that, but theologically, as, as far as being committed to the truths of Christianity. And so in his book, he talks about in salvation, talking about this, this commitment involving three aspects. Uh, it involves, he says, three things, the ascent of the mind, the mm-hmm. trust of the heart mm-hmm. and the decision of the will. All three mm-hmm. of those are involved when a person uh, comes to faith. When they, when I talk about volition, I'm talking about a person's will, desire, that responsiveness they have uh, to Christ. That's what we're talking about here. Interesting. Yeah. So then further explain the intellectual ascent. I'm curious on that. So, Curtis, you er, before the podcast mentioned the wor- Greek word pistis. We get our word mm-hmm. pistis. Uh, yep. This in, in Odin, I'm reading here. He says at one level, simply means belief in the truth is that persuasion by which something is revealed as true. And right. uh, and he evolves, you know, Hebrews six eighteen, Augustine on the prophet of believing, uh, Chrysostom, and some, and these are some early church fathers. He lists some of their writings here as well. But there's three things to, to summarize. There's three things. There are three things he discusses about the ascent of the will. First of all, the or excuse me, the ascent of the mind. The intellectual ascent of the mind is the acceptance of the truth of Christ. Here mm-hmm. is what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. It's an acceptance of the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. In your mind, you accept those things as true. A -hmm. believer will live in confidence of the divine self-disclosure found in the pages of Scripture. And as Thomas Oden said on page 603, uh, he says, um, see if I can find it here, saving faith does not function optimally either Without or against reason, though it reaches beyond reason, no one is redeemed by a truth asserted, which is not true. So truth does matter in in our commitment of faith. And so another way that, that the intellectual ascent of the mind is involved with our volition, our turning to Christ, is secondly, intellectual ascent also includes a recognition of divine self-disclosure. Here we understand that Scripture is the Word of God. Um, in other words, a person recognizes the divine revelation found in the pages of Scripture. It's not merely a matter of accepting a few facts and figures, but rather it's a believer's understanding that the Scripture is, in fact, the Word of God. Now, believing in the Word of God doesn't save you, and he's not saying that. Right. But believing that in divine self-disclosure in the scripture is where we find the the elements, the, the, those things that build up our faith and those things that put us on the right path. So saving faith is going to lead someone to the understanding that scripture is the word of God, not the other way around. And then third, and lastly, intellectual ascent includes more than probabilities Curtis, this is so important because this ties in, and really the next section ties in with what we discussed last week in the revival. It's more than probabilities, but it includes certainties 
which come by personal experiences of faith. Thomas Oden, and I agree with him, says that our experiences do matter. Yeah. They do matter. Contrary yeah. to many popular apologists, Odin argues on page 604 that experience solidifies a person's faith. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think you and I even had that uh that conversation or maybe even you said it or somebody we know said it. I say so much keep that Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. Right. It says um, a a person with an argument for God cannot trump a person with an experience with God. That's true. I believe so. Well, I, I will say this. Apologetics brought me to a stronger faith in the Lord. Mm. But my experiences with the Lord have concrete hermetic. It, yeah, I was going to say hermetic seal, but I like your term better. It's, it's, it's concreted it down. It's, it's put it in concrete. It solidified it. I mean, sure. in those experiences with angels and what I've seen, I mean, I don't know what God has in store for me in the years to come. Uh, but right now, my, the time I've, I've uh, spent as a hospice chaplain and seeing certain things as I have, there is no doubt in my mind anymore. That there's a heaven. I used to wonder. Yeah. I thought, you know, it, you know, do do we, you know, can we really know? I mean, but seeing these angels, these those times I have, and seeing certain things happen, th- there's no such thing as coincidence. And seeing certain things happen with people, as I've seen them, there's no doubt in my mind that there's something li- that lies beyond the scope of this mere mortal world and, and especially those people of faith and the things that they've witnessed and the things that happens toward the end of their life, it's going to be a, a spectacular place. I, I can tell you that it's going to be a spectacular place. So yeah, apologetics brought me back to a stronger faith, but sure. as you said, Curtis, the experience is put in concrete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, the consistency and constancies of God, of God's reliability of him being there, um, certainly, certainly can be categorized as an experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what do you mean by the trust of the heart? Um, went down too far. Okay. Um, I think it becomes a very important discussion. And here again, this goes in with our discussion again last week about the role of emotions and the role of our spiritual life. Saving faith is more than just intellectual assent. And that's where I think a lot of modern day apologists have really gone off track. Yes, we can't. Just rely on our emotions. I get that because our emotions can lead us astray. I get that. We've got to be grounded in the truth of Christ. And I understand that because I know emotionalism can lead us astray. I get that. I understand that. And I'm not arguing to the contrary. But saving faith is more than just an intellectual assent to certain facts and figures. It's about a relationship. Mm 
It includes an emotive responsiveness. And Odin says on page uh, 604, uh, actually, I actually typed it out here, so I'll read it from here. Faith requires the assent of the whole heart. Now, what is the biblical meaning for the heart? It's your mind, your will, or your emotions. Yeah, your core function, your core emotional, or not emotional, but core function uh, of your of your spiritual life. Absolutely. And so the confident affirmation of the whole person, not the mind only. So our emotions are involved with our relationship with Christ. Now, they're not, they're not the motivating factor. They're not the driving force. But that's not to say that we ignore our emotions because this is what I've learned through CPE. It's what I've learned through chaplaincy. It's what I've learned through, through counseling. If you ignore your emotions, this isn't a pastoral term, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's going to come back and bite you in the butt, quite mm-hmm. frankly. If you don't deal with grief and you don't deal with your emotions, they have a way of resurfacing. And sometimes yeah. they can resurface in, in health issues and health problems you may have. We've got to deal with those things. So, again, faith is not a matter of, of the mind only. It involves the heart, the emotions. Faith abandons any form of reliance, trust, or idolatry that competes with the total trust yeah. in God. Yeah. And so trust of the heart includes a complete emotional, volitional dependence on God, not just an intellectual agreement on certain facts and figures. Right. So this could be, you could say, um, a, um, a allegiance correct i i think so i think so so when it says in christ alone or in faith alone right mm-hmm. he's also saying that using that same word in allegiance alone so yeah. throw everything else to the side let that core being that's inside you and all of your functioning be aligned and allegianced to Christ. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That includes the mind, will, and emotions, the totality of a person's being. Very good. So, also, what is involved with the decision of the will? So, the last thing he mentions is the, is the Odin mentions is the decision of the will. And here, uh, he, the decision of the will not only includes an initial agreement to accept Christ, but it also includes a daily trust in God and a decision to consciously follow Christ. Uh, there was an ancient guy by the name of Clement of Rome uh, who, who wrote that uh, faith surrenders the totality of the mind, heart, and soul to God. Thus, faith in Christ is a decision. It's not only a decision, but it's also a daily habit. It includes a daily commitment to follow the leadership of Christ. And so I want to read, I want to read this to you real, real quickly. Trust may become a habit of will enabled by continuing grace. The will rests in God as its chief present good and future hope of good. Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler that he sell all those who f- wish 
first to bury their dead or bid farewell to their loved ones have not yet understood the radical nature of the impending reign of God. The lordship of Christ comes before one's father, daughter, mother, brother, sister, wife, family members, property, or even life itself. It's a complete surrender of all your your being to Mm. to the will of God. And that's what that's what involves. Yeah, that's uh, there's quite a bit of scripture popping off in my head right now about that. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's so important for us because it's not just now I I know we come from different traditions. And so I I, I hold a stronger belief in in the assurance that, that that your perspective does. But even still speaking to my Baptist friends. I'm afraid that so many people look of saying, you know, you come to faith and that's it. But that's not what faith is about. It's a daily right. walk with Christ. It's a daily commitment to Christ. It's a daily commit, a daily commitment that when someone cuts you off, you don't try to run your bumper into that person's corner of their car and wreck them. Or if someone says something to you, it's a daily commitment not to bear back and knock that person out. Uh, you know, it's a daily commitment to uh, to follow the ways of Christ and to 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 give yourself over to Christ. I think that's what Odin's saying, and I think he's I think he's onto something. Mm-hmm. So, does the non-Calvinist concept of resistible grace in any way diminish the sovereign work of God in salvation? Absolutely not. Because salvation is totally a work of God. Salvation comes by the first movement of God. Christ paid the debt of sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and rushes in a person's life. The Holy Spirit convicts a person. The Holy Spirit teaches a person. The Holy Spirit leads a person. Christ paid it. The Father planned it. The, The Spirit applies it. The only thing we do is respond and say yes. And that's it. That, that that's it and so that is not giving us it would be like curtis if you were a multimillionaire and you gave me a hundred acres of land and in, in montana you paid for it and uh, you gave me a ranch out there and you say come live all you got to do is pack your bags and come live out here and all i would have to do is say yes uh now i get out there and you probably say get back to north carolina <laughs> <laughs> but now God's not going to do that to us. But 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 the the simple illustration is that God paid it all. God did it all for us, and right. we just simply say yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's quite a bit there, and I know next week we're going to be covering um, diving into a little bit more specifics with with the Romans nine. So. Um, there's and believe be it or not, that'll hit. be the last one for uh, outside of uh, our interview with T.J. Gentry. That, that'll about wrap up soteriology. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. We here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers of this podcast help stretch your mind and is becoming a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends.
You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com.